different passage. This is sort of textual, sort of topical uh, sermon, but I want to begin reading at Colossians 2 and verse 20. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using, according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Father, we come to your word. We do say amen to it. It is our desire to live it out to cherish it, and I pray that you would transform our hearts through it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Most people, I don't think, have the foggiest notion about the kind of um, suffering that those who were crucified went through, um, or how revolting it would have been for first century people to have Jesus say to this to them. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Those people knew what crucifixion was like. It didn't have the nice sentimental value, you know, that the gold and jewel-studded crosses of today had. Uh, it was something that was recognized by everyone as an agonizing death. And yet Jesus almost seems to be chasing people away when he says, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Now, many of you guys and gals saw The uh, Passion, and uh, I thought it was a well-done movie and everything, but one point that I had disagreement with was uh, they're putting the nails through the hand. Number one, when he, they poked them around and everything, his hands would have fallen right out. I think the way that they did it, I'm positive that the way that they did it is they put the nail through the wrists, and I want to read to you a medical description of what difference that would make in the crucifixion. It says, The cross is placed on the ground and the exhausted man is quickly thrown backwards with his shoulder, shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of his wrists. He drives a heavy, square-wrought iron nail through the wrist deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flex and movement. The cross is then lifted into place. The left foot is pressed backwards against the right foot, and with both feet extended, toes down, a nail is driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees flexed. The victim is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails and the wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails and the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves. As he pushes himself upward to avoid this stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nails through his feet. Again, he feels the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the bones of his feet. As the arms fatigue, cramps sweep through his muscles, knotting them with deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps, 
comes the inability to push himself upward to breathe. Air can be drawn into the lungs but not exhaled. He fights to raise himself in order to get even one small breath. Finally, carbon dioxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in life-giving oxygen. Hours of limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-wrenching cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain deep in the chest as the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart. And he goes on. And yet Jesus says, if you are not willing to take up your cross and endure that for him, you are not worthy of him. That's just an incredible, incredible thought. Over and over again through the New Testament, we are called to crucify ourselves, to crucify our flesh, to put to death our carnal impulses, to mortify uh, our sin nature. And I think this is a perfect description of sanctification and the pain that many people feel as they go through sanctification. During one of my counseling sessions, I had the the person just blurt out, I'm going to die if you make me do that. And uh, maybe some of you have felt the same way. You have felt like you're in a death struggle. Every time you say no to the flesh, you just feel like everything within you is revolting against what God is wanting you to do. Well, Hebrews 12, 4 speaks of your struggle against sin. Your struggle against sin. We are not instantly sanctified where everything is rosy and and cheery, uh, you know, right off the bat. There is a struggle, there's a wrestling, there's a fighting against the sin nature that the Scripture uh, talks about. And so we're going to be looking today at what in the world Paul means when he says in verse 5, therefore put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Uh, We have an enemy within that we need to destroy. And the first thing I think we need to sort through, and this is review for some of you, for some of you this is new, but we've got to make sure we are fighting against the right enemy. Uh, And many times in battles, uh, you get fired on by your own uh, soldiers, you know. In Gulf War, we had friendly fire that some of our people endured. And sometimes I believe that Christians engage in friendly fire on the wrong thing. And um, in chapter 2, he warns against these common mistakes. He says, first of all, in verses 20 through 22, that material things are not the enemy. Material things are not the enemy. In fact, those very things can be used in the service of God. And they should be used in the service of God. Alcohol is not the enemy of a drunkard. His flesh is. Food is not the enemy of a glutton. His his flesh is. And so in verses 20 through 22, he says, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, and that word uh, uh, basic principles, the two words there is one word in the Greek, it's stoicheia, and it means presuppositions or axioms. Uh, In mathematics, they would call the axioms there stoicheia or the presuppositions in which you would uh, begin your dialogue or some uh, part of a university's education. Those were the stoicheia. So he is basically saying, if you have died from the, from the 
presuppositions of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? And then he gives some of the regulations that the Pharisees had imposed. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. It's a whole lot easier to make up legalistic rules about uh, not touching certain things and avoiding certain things than it is to deal with the real enemy inside, which is our sin nature, our our flesh. Rather than putting to death our lack of self-control, it's easier to just get rid of the television set. Now, there is no nothing wrong with getting rid of the television set since there's almost nothing of any value on it, but uh, maybe there might be some nature shows and things, but uh, rather than putting to death gluttony, they treat their stomach as being the enemy, and so they'll staple their stomach, or they treat food as being the enemy, and so they will chemically change the food, and they, they they are refusing to address the right enemy. They're fighting against things. And uh, so that's the first thing. He warns us again. Uh, rather than putting death to death, uh, impurity and lust, many Christians in the first uh, two, three hundred years ran out into the desert so that they could avoid the opposite sex because they thought they were the enemy out there. If I just didn't have to see those things, I wouldn't have any problem. Well, they get out there and they find out their sin nature has followed them and it's driving them crazy. They can't get over the things that have been, have been troubling them. And so we make a huge mistake if we see the problem as being out there. Avoidance is not the solution. Touch not, taste not, handle not. So what happened is these people who ran out into the desert, they said, okay, obviously it's not just an enemy out there because I'm in the desert. There isn't anything out there except for sand. You know, I'm living in a cave and I still have these problems. And so they thought, okay, it's my body. My body is the problem. And so they treated that as the enemy and they began to abuse their bodies. Uh, They would go, for example, way beyond biblical fasting, and they would starve their bodies so long that they became ill and weak and sickly, and they thought if they weakened their body enough, it would not have the strength to tempt them, and it just didn't work. And so they would beat themselves, and uh, they would sleep out in the cold without a blanket, or they would go out where there's mosquitoes and all kinds of bugs, and they would just let themselves be bitten, you know, for hours and hours on end. In fact, one guy, he just went out there with the bugs. His, his skin was just raw, absolutely raw. And he thought if he abused his body enough, then maybe he would not be tempted by it. <clears throat> and so if you take a look at chapter 2, verse 23, he says the body's not the enemy. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and neglect of the body but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. They are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. He didn't say, well, you need something in addition. No, he says they are a zero value against the indulgence of the flesh. Uh, Stapling your stomach is not the solution to gluttony. The real enemy is not material things. The real enemy is called here the flesh. It's metaphorical, and I want you to notice that he distinguishes the flesh from the body. Okay, Abuse of the body, he says, has no value against the indulgence of the flesh. They are two different things. And so what's going on here is he's using a metaphorical 
um, usage of the flesh, and he is saying the members of your flesh. Now, the members of our body are our arms, our hands, our ears, our eyes, our nose. Those are the members of our body. And so he's using the same analogy, saying the members of your flesh, and what are the arms and the nose and the air, uh, the, the ears and things of the flesh? Well, he calls them there the... <coughs> He calls them there the fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desires. Those are the members of the flesh that need to be put to death. And over and over again, Scripture calls us to fight against those evil desires, the sinful impulses of our old nature. Galatians 5.24, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And I think the mode of death that he uses is particularly interesting there. Over and over again, Paul says the thing we need to do with our flesh is we need to crucify it. He takes the most gruesome death that you could think of, and I think he does so uh, for a very good reason, because the parallels between crucifixion and our sanctification are so strong. They're very, very strong. And if we don't have trouble, we're in trouble, because it says those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. If you don't have the kind of pain he's talking about, and you've never experienced it, he's saying, eh, there's something strange going on there because everyone who is a believer, everyone who is Christ, has put to death their old man and has repeatedly done so. <laughs> so let's take a look at some of these parallels. And by the way, the flesh is the same thing we saw last week as the old man. Uh, the old man is our old identity with Adam. Okay, first of all, fighting against sin is painful just as crucifixion was painful. And if you've never gone through pain and your sanctification, then you've never crucified your flesh. Now, on the other hand, people are so discouraged. They're saying, what is wrong with me that I have so many struggles? What is wrong with me? And we would say, there's nothing wrong with you. The fact that you are struggling against sin shows that there is life within you, that God's spirit is within you. That's not something to be upset about. Nothing wrong with you. The reason there is pain is that you are insisting that your old nature get up there on that cross. You're nailing him on the cross and he's resisting and he's crying out at the top of his lungs. And what many of you guys do is the moment he starts wrestling with you and the moment your flesh begins to cry out, oh, it's just too much trouble. You let him down. And so the next time you say no to your flesh, you know what happens? He cries even louder because you let him down the moment he cried the time before. And so it is so imperative you not let that sin off the cross until it is dead, okay? Until you kill it, until you mortify that flesh. Otherwise, it gets stronger rather than getting weaker. But many of us don't like to be executioners because we're afraid of the wrestling match that's going to go on if I resist uh, this sin like God calls us to resist it. And in Hebrews 12, verse 4, we find some people who had the same fears and the same struggles and difficulties that you do in wrestling against sin. In fact, I want you to turn there with me. Hebrews chapter 12. And this is a verse that meant a lot to me in the past. Why don't we start up with verse 1, where he uses the imagery of the gladiatorial races and wrestling and, and the boxing match, all of the Olympics imagery there. And he says, we've got this huge cloud of witnesses around us watching. You know, angels are called watchers, but God may even give the, some of the saints in heaven occasional glimpses of what's going on because it says that they pray. They're praying in heaven. Prayer meeting doesn't stop once we die. You can read that in Revelation. 
But anyway, Paul says that we need to be like Jesus. It says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now look at verse 4. He says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Now, what was happening is that these Hebrews were complaining how hard the struggle was against sin. I've been fighting, and it's just so hard, Paul. And Paul is saying, what? You're fighting? I don't see any wounds. I don't see any evidence that you have really been uh, resisting to the point that you're willing to have your bloodshed. Uh, what kind of fighting is this? The moment sin draws out its sword, you're fleeing. You're giving up. You're saying, okay, okay. I, I cry uncle. And he's saying, no, the true soldier is willing to get in there and destroy the enemy or be destroyed himself. You have not yet resisted under the shedding of blood. It's a metaphor that he's using of how seriously we need to be taking the process of sanctification. <clears throat> and so this is why I hate the, the Christian equivalent to the Pepsi-Cola advertising that says, try it, you'll like it. Those are not the words of Christ. It's painful to become a Christian. Christ said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And he who does not take his cross and follow me after me is not worthy of me. And so crucifixion causes pain. And initially, sanctification is very painful. The longer we persevere at it, the less painful it becomes, the weaker the flesh becomes, and the easier it is for us to resist the, the flesh. But we've got to persevere. Initially, it's a very painful by the way, absolutely nothing I'm giving in this sermon is original material. I didn't plagiarize it. I put it in my own words, but uh, you can find this in John Owen, Matthew Henry, and John Flavel. And David Butler said that there was another great book along the same lines by, was it Trapp? Or who was the guy that wrote The Crucified Christian? What was that? Okay, Christ Christopher Love, The Mortified Christian. Uh, I can almost recommend any Puritan. I mean, they were great, uh, great guys, but I haven't read that particular one. But these are the three that I've gotten this information from. Secondly, crucifixion affects the whole person. And I think the description of uh, crucifixion that I read right at the beginning, I think, shows that. Your, every nerve in your body feels like it has been affected by that. Here's what John Flavel comments on. He says, the death of the cross was universally painful. Every member, every sense, every sinew, every nerve was the seat and subject of tormenting pain. So it is in mortification. Mortification means to put to death, mortify, to kill, okay? So mortification of sin. It is not this or that particular member or act, but the whole body of sin that is to be destroyed. There are conflicts and anguish in every part. Now, you might wonder why in the world that is the case. And the reason is that the sinful impulses that are leading to this particular sin that you've been troubled over and that you're trying to get rid of, it also feeds many other sins in your life. And so you can't just deal with the one without immediately impacting the others. Now, you can if you use the world's methods. The world's methods are just avoidance. You never have to deal with the sinful impulse. And so you can get rid of drunkenness just by avoiding it, never drink again. And what happens? It's not painful at all to the other members. But when I have counseled people and we have gone after the heart issue that's led to the addiction that we are counseling, whether it's tobacco or it's uh, alcohol or some other thing like that, 
what we do is we look at all of the things that feed that impulse and we look at all of the things that that impulse is motivating and they grow like crazy. They didn't come to be sanctified in XYZ. They came for ABC, but boy, they're getting sanctified in all kinds of areas of their life. It's just growing so fast. And so the whole body of sin, as it were, uh, is affected. Okay, thirdly, crucifixion is a slow dash death. Now, you might wish that uh, it could be killed overnight. Uh, it, 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 it rarely happens that way. Occasionally, God instantly takes away the taste for sin even. They were revolted by the idea of going into that sin. But ordinarily, when a person is converted, God makes them struggle point by point through all of the different sins that they're going through. He'll instantly take away one or two here and there, you know, to give some encouragement. But ordinarily, it's slow. It takes time. And actually, this is an encouragement for you that it's not going to always be this much of a struggle. Little by little, that, that flesh will be more and more weakened. Let me read you from John Owen's book on the mortification of sin. He says, as a man nailed to the cross, he first struggles and strives and cries out with great strength and might. But as his blood and spirits waste, his strivings are faint and seldom. His cries low and hoarse, scarce to be heard. When a man first sets on a lust or distemper, in other words, he's, he's coming after it. When a man first sets on a lust or distemper to deal with it, it struggles with great violence to break loose. It cries with earnestness and impatience to be satisfied and relieved. But when by mortification the blood and spirits of it are let out, it moves seldom and faintly, cries sparingly, and is scarce heard in the heart. It may have sometimes a dying pang that makes an appearance of great vigor and strength, but it is quickly over, especially if it be kept from considerable success. And so it is slow. Over time, you gain more and more success, so it's less and less painful. But I think by the end of the sermon, you'll be encouraged that it is something that you can, that you can have heart by God's Spirit you can, you can achieve. The fourth parallel is that crucifixion is a shameful process. It's shameful because you are exposed to the full public view of everyone as a common, not just a common, worst of the criminals. And you are exposed before them bodily and in every other way. Most of the clothing, if not all of the clothing, uh, was removed. And so it's very shameful. Let me tell you something. If you are engaging in true sanctification, it will be shameful. It will hurt your pride. Now, many people don't want to go through crucifixion uh, they don't want to admit to other people that they have, you know, sinned. They don't want accountability. They don't want counseling. They don't want uh, a prayer partner to, to deal with them. Why? Because it would be too embarrassing for people to see that. Well, what you are saying is you don't want to be crucified. You're rejecting crucifixion. We need to keep in mind, Christ said, if you're not willing to be crucified, you're not even worthy of Jesus. You can't be his disciple, he says, unless you can take up your cross. You're willing to take up your cross and to follow after him. And so it involves ripping off the facade that so many of us put up that we are all put together and saying, no, I have sins just like other people do. Uh, I, I, and the, here's the things that I'm struggling with. I want you to hold me accountable as I work through these issues. James 5.16 says, Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. And somebody says, Oh, that's just too humbling. And God says, Get over it. Get over it. You know? James says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. And so stripping off the facade is so much a part of this crucifixion process where we just feel the shame and the embarrassment of being exposed before others. Galatians 5.24 again, those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Believers are willing to face that shame. They are willing. And then finally, crucifixion is not a natural death. It's a violent death. In other words, it does not die of old age. Some people think if I just leave it alone long enough, it'll die of old age. It doesn't. It doesn't. In fact, if it was not for the Holy Spirit, by His supernatural power, killing the strength of the old flesh within us, it would never die. An eternity of suffering in hell is not going to kill those sinful impulses of your flesh. They're going to continue to sin. They're going to continue to want to manifest themselves outwardly. And so it must be killed by God's power. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And those are the only two options. Either you let your flesh get off that cross and you end up in hell, reason being, true Christians won't do that. They're going to keep putting it back onto the cross. They're not going to just ignore their flesh. Either you do that and you're not a true believer or you put it to death by the power of the Spirit and throughout eternity you'll be ready. I on? Yep. Okay. So we need to ask ourselves, have we been crucifying the flesh or have we been avoiding the pain and the shame and using man-made methods of sanctification like the Pharisees did? Uh, if you want dry Phariseeism in your life, well, we've got all kinds of methodologies you can go through that can give you some temporary success, you know, but it will not be going after the root issue, the heart issues. And Christ says it's out of the heart that flow all of these, all of these sins. Now, I've painted a pretty sorry Christ, uh, picture of what it means to become a Christian, and some people might say, why in the world would anyone want to be a Christian if that's what you're offering to them, Lord? But the neat thing about this is it assumes that uh, you've already been changed, and God's the one who makes you a Christian anyway. And if he makes you a Christian, you're going to want to uh, follow after him. You're going to be willing to pick up your cross and follow after him. And so our natural inclination is to save our pride, to save our lust, to save our desires. But Colossians 2.20 says, since you have been crucified with Christ, there's two kinds of ifs in the Greek, and this is the if of certainty. <laughs> if, as is certain, you have died with Christ, then here is what should follow. You know, if, as is certain, you were raised with Christ, here is what should follow. Galatians 5.24 indicates the moment you were regenerated, you began to put that old fleshly sin nature on the cross. You hated it. So you didn't actually start the crucifixion process. God's Spirit did because He engendered within you a hatred for the flesh. And what Christ did when He uh, taught on this subject in the Gospels is He chased away the crowds. They didn't want to hear it. They were offended when He said that they had to die to self. And he's, he's, He says to His disciples, will you leave also? And his disciples weren't masochists. They didn't say, oh, no, we love pain. Bring it on. They didn't say that. They said, well, where can we go, Lord? For you have the words of eternal life. I guess we're stuck, Lord. We don't like this any more than the others like it. But we're bound and determined. We're going to follow after you because you have the words of eternal life. So it's not saying you're going to love the, the pain of putting these things to death, but it's saying you're so motivated to please God and you're so hateful 
had such a hatred for your sin that you're going to be willing to go through the discomfort. And so the person who is regenerate, he's been transferred into a new kingdom. He has a new love, a new hatred. For example, in Romans chapter 7, the person in there is so discouraged over the fact that he keeps falling into sin. What is wrong with me that I keep falling into sin? Well, there's something right about him as well in that he has a new hatred because the things that he does are the things he hates. So he has a new hatred that has been engendered uh, into his heart. And so as he gradually moves from Romans 7 to Romans 8, where there is victory, there is triumph over these fleshly desires, he enters into the power of sanctification. He sees it. He realizes it. And I've listed in your outline five additional reasons why we as Christians can be motivated to put to death our sinful desires. First reason is that we know we cannot please God if we are controlled by the flesh. We can't. James 4.4 4 says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. If you let the flesh down off the cross and you make a peace treaty with it and say, I'm going to be friends with you, God says, you can't be friends with me. You can't please God. Uh, Romans 8, 7 through 8 says, Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And if you look at our text, uh, Colossians 3 and verse 6, he says, Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. And so we need to crucify it because God hates the flesh and we want to please God. Okay. Um, second reason, because this is the way to life more abundant. This is the pathway to liberty. This is the pathway to uh, more joy. Uh, Romans 7 is the pathway to Romans 8. You can't get to Romans 8 without the suffering of Romans 7. Colossians 2, 20 through 23 is the prelude to the resurrection power in, in Colossians 3, uh, 1 through 4. Uh, you, we, you cannot have any shortcuts you have to go through the cross. Every Christian has to go through the cross. Uh, Romans 8, verse 13, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And so the irony is that the person who is willing to die to self can really live it up, can really live to the Lord. He's the one that has the joy. He's the one that has the empowering of the Spirit. You can't get resurrected until you die, right? And so the two go hand in hand. You've got to go through the cross. And what we need to ask, is the victory really worth, you know, the pain that we're going through? We have to say, yes, it is absolutely worthwhile. Now, if you're not motivated by those two reasons, maybe you'll be motivated by this next one. And that is, the third reason is that we must put to death the, uh, the flesh because the flesh is a deadly enemy. He's a citizen of the world. He fights against God. He wars against our, uh, against our soul. And until we understand how wicked and how dangerous this enemy is, we may not be motivated like we should be. I watched Patriot last uh, week with Clean Flicks. And uh, by the way, if you ever wonder about some of the movies, they're Clean Flicks movies, okay? All of the bad stuff's been taken out. Uh, but uh, watch Patriot. And that guy, what was the guy's name, the hero? Um, Yeah, well, Mel Gibson, whoever he was playing. But anyway, that guy, 
he just did not want to fight in this battle. And what finally motivated him to fight in that battle was that his son had been killed and it was now personal. He began to realize how dangerous and how awful an enemy that he was dealing with. And so he was motivated to fight. And we need to, we need to have the same realization. Uh, one of the things I found fascinating about the Jeffrey Dahmer case is that even people who were opposed to the death penalty were quite willing to pull the switch on him because they were so revolted by the, the, the cannibalism and the torture and all of the things that this guy went through. They thought, well, if there's one person who deserves the death penalty, this guy would be it. And we need to realize our flesh is like that Jeffrey Dahmer. And when you begin to realize how awful it is, you're going to be willing to pull the switch on, 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 on your, um, your old man within as well. The Puritans spoke of the exceeding sinfulness of sin. I like that phrase, the exceeding sinfulness of sin. Now, let me just give you a few phrases from the verses that are in your outline there. It speaks of, the scripture speaks of the filthiness of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, being defiled by the flesh, being led into captivity to the law of sin, becoming a slave of sin. The wages of sin is death. Sin leads to more sin. Proverbs 10, 16. Romans 8, 7 indicates that the flesh is at enmity with God. 1 Peter 2, 11 speaks of fleshly lusts which war against the soul. You cannot just leave it alone. You can't just say, oh, I'm neutral. I'm, I'm not going to be involved in this warfare. God's going to have to take them on. Uh, like in the Patriot. No, uh, we have to be involved. Galatians 5 says, the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, and then he talks about the victory that comes through his power. And so the scripture says that the old man within us deserves to die. Now the carnal nature within you doesn't want you to believe that. Carnal nature within you is, is going to say, you know, the, the sin Adam engaged in, that wasn't such a big deal. How in the world could he be put into hell? Nah, he can't possibly deserve hell. And the reason is because the old man within doesn't want us to think that we deserve to go to hell. But when God regenerates us, when he opens the eyes of our understanding, and we begin to see how many times that old man has taken us in, we begin to realize this is somebody that absolutely needs to be crucified. And so read that book I recommended last week. Buy it from, from Kurt, if there are any left, of Chris Lungard's book. Um, and just, he, he's got a magnificent way of portraying, I think, the, how, how, how terrible this enemy is. Okay, let's see here. Um, I better not skip over any points. I've dealt with that one. Okay, point D, fourthly. Because the flesh will seek to take you captive. It may seem like such a little sin. Oh, I'll just sin this once. You know, it's not that big of a deal. And uh, I'll, I'll get right back out of it. But God says, no, it's like a trap. And you're going to go downhill faster and faster. Romans 6, 19 speaks of that downhill slide as being slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. It's like pretzels. You can't just stop with one, right? It, 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 you can't. 2 Peter 2, 19 talks about false teachers who tell you, oh, don't get legalistic. You know, it, it's okay. Just do it once in a while. And uh, he says, while they promise them liberty... They themselves are slaves of corruption, for by whom a person is overcome, 
By him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. John 8.34 says, Most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. You cannot just stop with one. You become enslaved. But praise Jesus, Romans 6.6 6 says, Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. Okay? It is only through crucifixion that you can gain freedom from that slavery. And so if you've been struggling in, in some areas in your life, again, uh, read, read that book and other books that deal with that. And then the final motivation is if you don't kill it, it will kill you. Uh, Romans 8, 13, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You will die. It's guaranteed. It's truly a, a life and death struggle. Romans 6, 21, the end of those things is death. Romans 8, 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And I think sometimes people are willing to fight when they realize if they don't, they're toast. And so you need to realize, if you don't, you're toast. You've got to fight against it, and don't let your flesh deceive you into thinking that it's not that serious of a matter. It is. Now, let's see how we can obey this commandment. And because of time situations, I'm not going to get into the methodologies of, uh, of dealing with that, maybe at another time that we can. But I want to have a Godward focus that apart from the ministry of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in our lives, you can have all of the methodologies that you want, and it's not going to help you out uh, at all. Um, otherwise, uh, frequently what happens, and those are good method, methods, you know, fasting and and uh, uh, prayer and meditation and uh, there, there's any number of different things depending on the sin that God has us be involved in. But we can become formalist Christians if we do that apart from grace. Listen to what uh, John Owen says on the formalist or the pharisaical uh, evangelical. He says, mortification from a self-strength carried on by self-invention Unto the end of self-righteousness is the soul and substance of all false religion in the world. He is saying, don't think that false religions don't have, uh, you know, difficult things that they will impose upon themselves. They've got all kinds, they've got fasting, they've got all of these things. But the problem is they're doing it through self-strength rather than through God's grace. And so he says, you need to make sure you avo avoid the legalism of false religion. And remember, we started this sermon by the Pharisees' counterfeit of <clears throat> fighting against the wrong things. You know, the Pharisee says, you know, it was my upbringing, my parents' fault, or it's my spouse's fault, or it's my environment's fault, or it's my body's fault. I can't help it. It's just my personality, you know, or whatever. But they won't deal with the real enemy within. So it's not just the right enemy that we've got to look at, but we've also got to realize we've got to have the right methodologies and we've got to have the right uh, empowerment. But I just want to deal with the empowerment this morning. Romans 8.13, it says, If you live according to the flesh... Um, yeah, that's the right one. We're dealing with the spirit first. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. And so especially that phrase, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. The Holy Spirit is, 
is the one who makes this possible. Galatians 5.17, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. And so it's all his fault. It's the Holy Spirit indwelling you who's been causing all of the trouble and the strain in your life because he's taken the fun out of sinning. You're wanting the old fun, and the Spirit all of a sudden has made it not fun anymore because you're guilty, you feel, you feel like uh, this is causing bondage, which it really is. He's illuminated your mind. And I think this is something we should praise Jesus for, that the Spirit of God begins that work and makes us hate the things that we do. Uh, Romans 8 indicates the Holy Spirit renews our mind, our wills, our emotions. He takes the, sin of, uh, the joy of sinning away, Galatians 5.17. He changes our mind about sin, Romans 8, 5, and 6, he produces the opposite graces, Galatians 5, 16 through 25. And so we need to ask, am I depending upon the Spirit, or am I just fighting against the flesh in my own strength? Now turn back again to Colossians 3, which emphasizes our union with Christ, not just the Spirit's work, but our union with Christ having an impact as well. In verse 3, he says, for you died... And your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden. It's protected. You have a security. Like we talked about in the, in the communion uh, meal here, because we are secure in our sonship, we are freed up to fight against sin by the empowering of his spirit without having to always be perfect. We're making progress. We're growing. We're pressing toward the upward call that God has given to us in Christ Jesus. And so our security uh, really enables us to, to, to fight, you should never think that by fighting against sin, you gain your security or you gain God's favor. You, does that make sense? It's quite a different motivation. If you're trying to gain God's favor, you will never gain it because there's always going to be something more that you need to fight against. But if you have God's favor, you're secure in justification by faith and your union with him, then you can fight with all your might. You're freed up from worrying about your position in him and your salvation. Let me read you what Horatius Bonar, a very godly Scotch pastor, said over a hundred years ago. He said, it is forgiveness that sets a man working for God. He does not work in order to be forgiven, but because he has been forgiven and the consciousness of his sin being pardoned makes him long more for its entire removal than he ever did before. An unforgiven man cannot work. He has not the will, nor the power, nor the liberty. He is in chains. Israel and Egypt could not serve Jehovah. Let my people go that they may serve me, was, the, was God's message to Pharaoh. First liberty, then service. A forgiven man is a true worker, the true law keeper. He can, he will, he must work for God. He has come into contact with that part of God's character which warms his cold heart. Forgiving love constrains him. He cannot but work for him who has removed his sins from him as far as the east is from the west. Forgiveness has made him a free man and given him a new and most loving master. Forgiveness received freely from the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ acts as a spring, an impulse, a stimulus of divine potency. It is more irresistible than law or terror or threat. And I just thought that is such a good expression of what I was trying to get across. I think we've all experienced the, the joy and the motivation that we have when we're forgiven to, to please the Lord, but frequently we forget it, and we go back into the old trudge through, you know, and trying to gain God's favor by, by doing good. No, we've got to operate out of the security that we have. Secondly, it's not just union with Christ that gives 
that gives a security, it also gives us authority over the flesh. And so Colossians 3.1 says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Because we're united with Christ, we have an authority that we did not have before. And, and I, last week I, I mentioned Ephesians 2.6. He raised us up together, made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And yet I think frequently we don't claim the authority. We don't pray as if we're seated from the heavenlies. We have an authority as those who are united with Christ to resist the devil and anything that he brings against us. We have an authority to lay claim to our provisions, the Holy Spirit in our life. We need to pray as those who are united with Christ. And then thirdly, our union with Christ gives us hope. Chapter 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. He's basically saying, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. He's not going to let you down. So there's hope. You'll get over it. You know, eventually uh, you'll be coming back with him to even judge the world. So we've got, um, we've got the Holy Spirit. We've got Christ. And then thirdly, we must resist the flesh by the plan of the Father as laid out in his word. In chapter 2, verse 20, Paul complains, these people were not using God's methods, they were using the world's methods and the doctrines and commandments of men. And he says, no, you've got to do it God's way. And again, we're not going to give the, the ways, the specific blueprints here, but just, just saying, look at it through God's methodology because the world's methodology is just a band-aid. Here's what John Owen said. Sometimes they think indeed that they have foiled sin, in other words, that they have defeated sin when they have only raised a dust that they see it not. In other words, their, their actions and everything are raising a cloud of dust. They can't see the sin. He says, they distemper their natural affections of fear, sorrow, and anguish, which makes them believe that sin is conquered when it's not even touched. By that time, they are cold. They must to the battle again, and the lust which they thought to be slain appears to have no wound. In other words, we've got to do it God's way, or there will not be permanent victory. And yet, because of the resources we have in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we can engage in the methodologies with all the hope uh, that uh, we will conquer. Okay, we have hope because true believers, let's just deal with a few more hope issues. Um, true believers are already crucified in 30 AD positionally, Colossians 2.20. I think makes that clear. Romans 6, 6 says the same, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. And if you read through chapter 6 of Romans, you'll see that all who are positionally crucified with Christ are being transformed and will be glorified. It's an unbreakable chain. So if you died with Christ positionally, it'll go all the way through. He will finish it. Second thing that gives you hope and encouragement is that you've already been crucified experientially the moment you were born again. He put you on the cross. And uh, Galatians 2.20 is an example. I've been crucified with Christ, and that's actually the position on the cross, but it goes on to say, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the moment we are regenerated, the flesh is put on the cross, he gives us his new resurrection power. And then thirdly, James 4, 5 says, Do you think that the scripture says in vain? 
The spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously? No, he is not yearning in us in vain. He is yearning successfully within us. The spirit enables us. And again, let me read you that quote I gave earlier of John Owen on this progress. As a man nailed to the cross, he first struggles and strives and cries out with great strength and might. But as his blood and spirits waste, his strivings are faint and seldom. His cries low and hoarse, scarce to be heard. When a man first sets on a lust or distemper to deal with it, it struggles with great violence to break loose. It cries with earnestness and impatience to be satisfied and relieved. But when by mortification the blood and spirits of it are let out, it moves seldom and faintly, cries sparingly, and is scarce heard in the heart. It may have sometimes a dying pang that makes an appearance of great vigor and strength, but it's quickly over, especially if it be kept from considerable success. And so you can have victory. And so let me just leave you with one admonition. Paul calls upon us to fight the good fight. Now, what's a good fight if you're in it? It's the one that you win, right? There hadn't been any fight I was in that I lost that was a good fight. That was a terrible fight, right? And so if he calls you to fight the good fight, that means that he's giving you hope. There's no, you, you can win the battle against the sin. Fight the good fight with all your might. Because why? Christ is our strength. He is our might. And so I want to leave that with you. May God give you the grace, and the willingness, the determination to crucify your passions. Amen. Amen. Father God, we thank you for your word even when it steps on our toes. We thank you, Father, even when it is uncomfortable. We thank you for your challenge when you said that if we're not willing to pick up our cross and follow after you, we're not even worthy of you. Father, in ourselves, we would never, ever want to be crucified. And so, Father, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart that you regenerated us, that you made us willing to pick up our cross and follow after you, that you instilled within us a hungering and thirsting after righteousness and a hatred for the things that we do. We bless you, Father. We lay claim to your promise that he who has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that this, your people, would be encouraged, that they do not need to give up, that they can keep on keeping on to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.